welcome. We're joined by Jorge Garcia. Uh, Jorge is the chairman of ODAC. Uh, ODAC recently, uh, last Friday, answered a question, a specific question about PARP inhibition in uh, prostate cancer. You'll be aware we've been following this story. We had our first emergency podcast at ASCO GU, and we had Dan George and Silky Gillison debate this issue. It's one of the hottest issues, I think, in in GU cancer. Jorge, do you want to introduce yourself briefly and then just a welcome, by the way, and, and then and thanks for coming. And then maybe just what was the question that you were answering in ODAC on Friday? Thanks, Tom, and thanks, Ryan, for the opportunity to be with you guys. Um, Jorge Garcia, I'm a GU medical oncologist and the chair of uh, oncology at University Hospital Simon Cancer Center at Case Western Reserve uh, University in Ohio, Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, so, um, you know, so the meat of the data, Tom, obviously, was that uh, the FDA wanted to have uh, the Propel data uh, phase three trial looking at the combination of uh, ABI, the adrenal biosynthesis inhibitor, plus olaparinib, a PARP inhibitor, uh, against uh, ABI, uh, prednisone plus placebo, as a first-line metastatic castration-resistant uh, prostate cancer line of therapy, if you will. Uh, the company or the applicant uh, was interested or is interested in getting an unrestricted label for all comers, again, all MRCPs, regardless of biomarker. And the FDA was concerned or is concerned to the extent of what we know as to the true benefit of combination therapy in a biomarker negative patient population. So the question to ODAC was to define based upon the existing data uh, whether or not the combination should be restricted uh, to patients with BRCA mutations and not unrestricted. So this was just restricted to BRCA mutations and not the whole HRR panel. That was the question indeed. Right. And so there are only about 10% of prostate cancer patients with BRCA mutations. There are about 30% with HRR. And then, of course, there's the ITT population. The clinical trial didn't um, didn't pursue this approach. The and, and the FDA has a habit, historically, of going with what the clinical trial asked. And the clinical trial asked the question of progression-free survival in the ITT population of ABI plus PARP versus ABI plus placebo. What right, and I think, I think, Tom, just to, to jump in, I think the reason that, at least that I understand that there was a study called Study 8 that was done just before this, which was this same design, but a small randomized phase two that didn't see a difference based on HRR status. Now it was only, if I remember like 70 patients per arm or something like that. So it was, you know, sort of small randomized phase two and it didn't see any difference based on HRR. So that was one of the justifications where the company said, well, gee, we don't see any difference. Let's just do an all comer trial. So just, and again, remember the, the, the knowledge in this area certainly has evolved since this trial was designed. So I think that's sort of important background as well. And so some of those markers that aren't BRCA, there's ATM and there are other biomarkers. So the FDA is not, you know, it's not even interested in the HRR population. It's just asking that question, is the benefit isolated, in your opinion, to that 10% of patients? Or should it be approved in that 10%? Because clearly there'll be some patients, I would imagine, who would benefit in that other 80%. Dan George was very clear with us, and I know he was at your meeting as well, that um, you can't just use the bracket population there must there must be some benefit in some of the other population but that wasn't really the question you were being asked you were being asked a question on the benefit of risk benefit ratio 
whether it should be that 10%. Is that fair, Jorge? Yeah, yeah I think that's fair. You know, I think that there's a, there was a perception and the, the benefit observed throughout the trial you know, was probably derived greatly by those with BRCA1 and BRCA2. Granted, remember that you know, if you look at the difference between BRCA1 and BRCA2, the vast majority of our patients will have BRCA2s. And Jorge, how does one get to darken your door in ODAC? How do we get to, how do you get, how do you find yourself in front of ODAC? How does one find <laughs> oneself there? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I guess serendipity. Uh, no, you know, I was, you know, I think many, many people in your, in your audience probably realize Brian was uh, uh, the chair of ODAC. He rotated out. I was asked to join uh, ODAC. No, Jorge, my question, sorry, my question is not about that. My question is, how does a drug developer, how does AstraZeneca find itself in ODAC? Oh, I see. Say, sorry. You know, do, do, they take, do they pick random studies? or, or, or <laughs> no. how, how do you find yourself? In, how does a drug company find itself in front of ODAC? Got you. Is that British uh, charming accent of yours? Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so, so, so I actually, to be honest with you, I'm not privy to those. I mean, none of the ODAC committee members, uh, including the chairperson, is privy as to what uh, trials or what, um, uh, you know, protocols or whatever uh, concerns the FDA has until they post it. I think uh, my, my, interpret my personal interpretation of, of why oftentimes uh, these, some studies are actually, uh, you know, going through a public ODAC committee is because there is a concern about safety, uh, there is a concern about uh, efficacy specifically, or com or controversies within uh, the conduct of the of the trial. You know, in this case, you know, when you actually look at the FDA position and the applicant position, it, clearly there was a d disagreement as to the statistical validity of the question at hand. Right? You know, uh, the applicant. Uh, felt and based upon uh, how they conducted the trial that they addressed the question at hand. And in reality, the trial did meet its primary endpoint. There's no doubt, you know, there was a median PFS of eight months between AVI treated patients and AVI plus olaparinib. But the question that the FDA had is that if you go back and start actually analyzing, you know, based upon biomarker, you know, uh, uh, you know, there was a clearly a distinct difference between those who have through BRCA1. And historically, again, I don't think the decision how propel or how, how the vote went on can be taken in a vacuum. You know, you have to actually understand that profound led to a, the first PARP inhibitor in prostate with bi biomarker-driven approach, that rucaparinib is restricted for BRCA1 and BRCA2, that magnitude, many people may agree or disagree, that may be uh, similar or a different trial, but the futility study of magnitude looking at uh, a similar combination of a PAR plus ABI failed to show difference in outcome in those patients with, uh, without uh, an HRHR mutation for that matter. You know, so I think that that is the biggest question is, you know, was the, was the efficacy, you know, across the entire patient population or was actually derived based upon a specific group of patients with the ideal biomarker for testing, if you will. Now, Brian, um, as luck would have oh. it, you were on the committee as well. Um, and in fact, I saw your <laughs> face appear from time to time making unusually intelligent comments actually brian <laughs> tom i'll just let me just jump in to answer your question how does the how does the drug get to odac i mean i think what maybe one of the things people don't realize is you know the most important thing is that this puts everything out in the public forum right so fda deliberations per se are not in the public forum their decision is public but there's no explanation per se of why they might approve or disapprove a drug but odac does just that right word of ODAC has to be by law in the public forum. So it allows 
a discussion like this to be in the public forum to say, hey, this downvote or approve or don't approve in an ITT. And it, it allows, you know, basically all opinions to get out there to say, you know, this is obviously a much more nuanced discussion. So to answer your question, how does a drug get here? Well, it's, it's exactly this. When you can look at the data one way and say, yeah, I think it should be unrestricted. You can look at it a different way and say, no, I think it should be restricted, right? It's, for me, it's what makes it so interesting, right? Is that these are by gray and difficult areas that we need to sort through. And, it, and again, just puts it into the public domain. I, and sure. just, uh, just um, to expand on Brian's, remember uh, uh, the FDA does not uh, necessarily follow the, uh, o the ODAC voting, right? It, it, that is pressed, you can vote up or down and the FDA will have the autonomy to make whatever decision they want to make. So the vote doesn't actually, I don't think, Brian, you can comment, Correct. but I don't think the vote has ever persuaded the FDA to go different directions. Sometimes we vote up and the FDA makes a different decision. Sometimes we vote down and the FDA makes a different decision. Yeah. Before we go into the data, the FDA doesn't have a track record, as far as I remember, of not taking the clinical trial and its endpoint on face value. It tends to look at a clinical trial, it was positive or negative, and then they approve or reject. And sometimes they reject positive trials. I remember um, that was a story with Tivosinib, and that's fine. Um, but the story here is different in that they've looked at a trial and then they've taken the trial apart. They've done their own sort of subset analysis. And then they've asked you to comment on subset analysis, which wasn't part of the initial trial design. Um, how comfortable do you feel with that? And is there precedent for doing it this way? I, you know, I think that, you know, it is, uh, again, you know, as a clinical investigator and as a, uh, as a clinician, oftentimes you... Um, will review the data, will analyze the data. Uh, we define, I mean, you will define the, whatever the scientific rigor of validity of whatever you're uh, studying and you make your own interpretation, Tom. I think the FDA, as I learned over the last four years in my role uh, at ODAC, I've learned that the FDA really is not, uh, is not in the prerogative there, you know, uh, that's not their job. They just simply actually you know, want to regulate based upon the existing data that they have in front of them. So a lot of the stuff we do clinically, which may relates to your point, right, is about interpretation, you know, semantics and so forth. But at the end of the day, uh, the, the company, the applicant has to prove, right, uh, the, the efficacy and has to actually come out with the best data that they can. You know, it's not up to the FDA to actually interpret the data uh, as a clinician would, it's up to the FDA to actually regulate based upon the data that is presented in front of them. I think, uh, you know, I, I have taken that uh, uh, lens as I review uh, applications and as I review uh, uh, other agents that have gone through the ODAC, you know, usually you review the docket, you know, I go with a preset notion as to, okay, well, clinically, I think that makes sense. And then during the meeting, you start hearing both positions and then you really start shifting your mind <clears throat> as to why you would you may want to vote up or down yeah and tom just to answer your question so probably most of the geo audience doesn't know that you know late last year fda restricted indication for PARP inhibitors in ovarian cancer based on basically similar data where the BRCA mutated did amazing you know uh hr hazard ratios for pfs in the point two range and, and os below one but then if you look at the non BRCA mutated you know, the, the HRs for OS were over one. So late last year, they restricted indications for nirapirib and rucaparib in, in ovarian cancer in a second-line maintenance setting. So, so 
from a precedent standpoint, I think that probably very much influenced. You got to remember that they're not just seeing, of course, prostate data. They're seeing everything, right? They're seeing all, all drugs and all data. So, so there is, there is, it, there is precedent for restricting an indication based on uh, a molecularly defined subset. In, in ovarian, they did it in retrospect, and here they were trying to do it prospectively. It's very hard to do it the other way around. As a sponsor, to go to the FDA and say, we did a big trial, it was negative, but isn't this subset cool? You, that you, never works. You can't do that. No. And actually, I, when, I, FDA, I, pre- when, FDA presented, when FDA presented, they, they went through this, right? Because they knew that, that your question was going to be one asked, like, wait a minute, can you do... If, if we can't do it to make a trial positive, why can you do it to make a trial negative? And they went through precedent for it in some examples. And I think there's a slideshow towards the end of the meeting about other, you know, restricted indications based on biomarkers. So I think, in my opinion, I don't know what you think, Jorge, they were, they were thoughtful about saying they're not just sort of plucking this out of thin air. There is some precedent to do it. Yeah, okay. no, I agree. I agree. But, but I do not believe, Brian, uh, for most of us, you know, who, uh, who were in the meeting, that was actually what actually skewed the vote one way or the other. You know, I think that, you know, I think that it was just the data uh, uh, that we have in front of us. But, you know, I'm not sure that the comparison with ovarian and other tumors would have made any, any difference to me as I was dissecting my vote. Uh, but but you're, you're right. Yeah. On, uh, on this show, we have a track record of trying to avoid the data because me and Brian often can't remember <laughs> it. However, on this particular occasion, I think it's worthwhile going through some of the data. So... Could you just, one of the two of you, just sort of summarize um, what the data that you were assessing looked like? Um, and I know that there was PFS data and OS data, and I know in the BRCA population, the hazard ratios were in the 0.2s. The ITT population, of course, that 0.2 was dragging the other hazard ratios down a little bit as well. And so they ended up being positive. But then I know that you were, uh, you, you saw subset data which separated the two populations in the same way as the magnitude trial had done previously, which you mentioned, uh, Jorge. Do you want to just summarize the data you saw that helped you make the decision that you arrived at? Sure, sure, sure. As, I, as, as we said before, there was no doubt that the trial uh, met its primary uh, efficacy endpoint. You know, it was an eight-month improvement in RPFS. You know, it was 25 against 17 months with a hazard ratio of 0.66. Uh, and a survival that it was obviously not mature, but trending towards improvement for the combination arm also with a hazard ratio around 0.81. I think that, you know, just barely made the confidence interval of one. Uh, but again, I think that the point that was stressed during the meeting was actually also that that median difference actually is, is important because it actually mimics what we saw with Cougar 302, which is the median survival in the ABI arm, right? Uh, in the ABI uh, uh, in that trial. Uh, but but I think the, the, the important part of the data, at least to me, was actually how you actually started splitting the patients based upon the presence or absence of biomarker, you know. And as you indicated earlier, there was around 85, around 11% of patients who have BRCA mutant tumors, right? The RPFS for that subset was 0.24 for RPFS, and the hazard ratio for survival was 0.3. If you then take the patients who uh, have a negative right, biomarker for BRCA, non-BRCA mutant for both D- with both DNA, ctDNA, and tumor tissue, you know, the RPFS for, uh, um, the hazard ratio, excuse me, for RPFS was point, around 0.85, and the median survival, actually, the hazard ratio was around 106. And the bigger question became, and actually Brian uh, uh, eloquently stated that during the meeting, 
the bigger question, I think what most of us hang our hat on was that indeterminate group, those patients who actually have unknown BRCA mutational status where RPF, the hazard ratio for RPFS was 0.66. And that was a median difference of around five months or so, which to us clinically may be meaningful for our patients. But the, and the hazard ratio trended towards you know, around 0.73, but it did cross the interval of one. So I think the bigger question of that data was whether or not the entire patient population was skewed by those exquisite patients who were benefiting from therapy, which clearly, in my mind, were those BRCA-positive patients. So, go ahead. Uh, Brian, I wonder if you could just describe to me how AstraZeneca set its stool out and the positive components of, of their argument, and then maybe um, the, to counter that, how the FDA responded to that. Yeah, I guess just to reiterate some of what Jorge said, I mean, there was the, you know, 11% of patients who were BRCA mutant amazing benefit. Everybody agrees, right? There's no, no question. Both sides agree that that group benefits amazingly. There was the sort of called double negative non-BRCA. So they have a negative ctDNA and a negative tissue test. And as Jorge just outlined the numbers, those patients pretty clearly don't benefit, right? PFS hazard ratio 0.85 and, a, and an OS hazard ratio actually above one. One of the fundamental discrepancies was that there's this middle 35% who were negative by either ctDNA or tissue, and most of those were ctDNA, who, who uh, FDA said, well, those are probably contaminated, right? They're probably contaminated by a handful of BRCA mutants or otherwise sensitive patients, and, and they're sort of pulling that hazard ratio down. And one of the main differences was FDA was sort of almost setting those to the side and saying, well, we really don't know their status, right? They're, they're indeterminate, whereas... Uh, AstraZeneca was saying, no, 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 they're, they're bracket negative because they had at least one negative test. And they made a point to say, I think appropriately, you know, in the real world, patients aren't getting both tests, right? I don't send both CTDNA and tissue on patients. So I send this, just this tissue. is a technicality, which I've not heard of before. So just go through that for me a bit more slowly, Brian. So what's happening to these patients is they are, to enter into the trial, uh, there has to submit both tissue and circulating tumor DNA. And BRCA DNA alterations were measured using Garden 360 or, a, uh, or a, an established methodology. And so each patient would then have, um, at the end of the trial, you would know their BRCA status both by tissue Correct. and by ctDNA. Ideally, you would, right? Ideally. But it but, wasn't a requirement for the trial. So patients went out and got treated, and then they had tissue and blood collected. But you can imagine that there's patients who don't have tissue, right? In clinical practice, their prostatectomy was 18 yeah. years ago somewhere, whatever. They, they don't have tissue. They don't get a new biopsy. And so a, a number of patients, I think it was 226, had ctDNA results that were negative, but did not have tissue available. Okay. So they were negative on one of the two tests. Correct. And under those circumstances, it's conceivable that they were positive, but unlikely. Correct. Unlikely. And so the yeah, I don't... I think that's really the fundamental question is how likely is it, you know, is and it so, just 10% likely like the ITT is it 20% likely the FDA but, but even just those, parked that population. Say that again. And the FDA just parked that population. So we don't discuss this population because we don't, we don't know. Is that right? Or did they... Yeah, they, I wouldn't say that they said, no, no they did discuss it, but they basically said, we don't, we don't know. We cannot be certain of their status. And what was and the so if you look at the people population? we definitely know, if you look at the people who are double negative and we know with, you know, a very high degree of certainty that they're negative, there's not benefit. And what was the hazard ratio in this third population where we didn't really know? 
You mean the um, the negative? No, in the no, population the... in the population where they didn't have the ctDNA test. Our RPFS was zero point six six. Correct. So, it was, so if you look at the outcomes, it was actually kind of in between the other two populations, the definitely positive and the definitely negative, let's call them. So almost you, you have to believe that, well, there's a fair number of patients, there's 280 patients. So you have to believe that, well, clearly there probably were some BRCA mutant patients in there, right? Or, or HHRs. Or, Correct. Or, or the, the biomarker is not as important as we think, and this is just a lucky result from the BRCA mutant population. Well, I could, uh, Brian, more, if I may, pull, the more you pull a trial apart, the more the possibility of statistical noise becomes relevant. Sure. And Go you're ahead. now getting into the era of saying, well, we started with one trial. We've now pulled it to three populations. Two of them are doing what we like and we're going with that. This third population doesn't quite fit our story. So we're going to park that story and pretend it doesn't exist. Because 0.66 <laughs> is quite a good result. So... Uh... So I think that I think that's something that actually I think Dan uh, George may have mentioned during his uh, uh, discussion. It was the understanding that that they wanted us to see this trial with different eyes uh, away from the biomarker positive historical data that we have. And that simply means that it is not about PARP only or inhibiting PARP, but rather is call it additive or synergistic effects between the two, the adrenal biosynthesis inhibitor and on a PARP inhibitor. And therefore, that combination is likely to benefit patients, even if they don't have a BRCA1, because it's the combo. It's not only the PARP inhibitor, if you will, right? That's something that actually, you know, uh, you know got a, a bit of traction in the meeting. And But I also feel, guys, that I don't want to sound demeaning to the company, but I also think that may have been a bit greedy in many ways, because if, in fact, the company have come and said, we want to actually do this combo for all patients with DNA repair deficiencies, regardless of BRCA1, BRCA2 ATM, but the other 12 or 15 that we may have from Profan or other trials, then that would have been a different story, right? I, I, I continue to believe that the story of the combination for, BRAC, for, for DNA repair or HHR and negative patients I still have to understand why would that combination work for those patients, right? But at the very least, you know, uh, there was no data about HRHRs, right? And that to me is the bigger question. And just Tom, if you actually really actually want to dissect the definition of how they actually they, they define BRCA mutant patients, it was either one or two positive BRCA tests, regardless of tissue or ctDNA. For the undetermined, uh, it was one test is negative or unknown, and the other test is unknown, right? Uh, and the, obviously the negative is negative. And if you look at the concordance between those who underwent ctDNA and those who have tissue, I mean, the different, I mean, there were only 2% of patients who have one positive, the other one negative, one negative, the other positive. So the reality of it is the vast majority have unknown status. Yes, and I would just add to that. I mean, if it, data came out during the meeting, if you look at the non-BRCA HRR population, HR mutant population, right? So it's in the bucket of HR mutant, but now you're pulling out those who are BRCA mutated. That RPFS, RPFS hazard ratio is 0.8, and then the OS hazard ratio is 1.02. So it kind of further, to me, further strengthens the argument that it's not all HRR, Right. Otherwise, those numbers would be much better. Well, we know things like ATM. We know for some of the yep. collateral trials, those ATM doesn't seem to be working either. So, 
I think what you're saying is that you were com- you were confident that the question was the right one, and the uncertainty. And Mike Morris said this previously with us: the uncertainty around the other components of HRR make this whole story somewhat confusing. So I guess the next question is: um, we've talked a little bit about the discussion that took place and how AstraZeneca set its stool out. We talked a bit about um, uh, how the conversation went. Just talk to me now about how the voting looked. What happened with the voting? So uh, I was actually surprised, Brian. I don't know you, you know, because I came I came uh, with a different mindset after I reviewed the docket and in my clinical experience. Uh, the voting went 11 up, meaning 11 supporting uh, restriction of the label for those with BRCA uh, myomarker, meaning BRCA positive. Uh, there was uh, one no, uh, meaning that uh, that person voted um, and felt that uh, the FDA was a bit too restrictive uh, as to um, the request to actually basically just actually use this combo for patients with BRCA mutations. Uh, and again, it raised the question, that person raised the question as to the possibility of actually expanding the label uh, to HHR negative patients, not only BRCA ones. And, the, and there was one abstain. Um, this person felt, uh, I don't want to, I'm paraphrasing that uh, the, the, the question for this person became the sequence uh, of event, basically defining sequence against combination. Should we use a PARP inhibitor plus ABI at front, or can we use uh, ABI followed by a PARP inhibitor the way that we are currently using it? So it became, you know, a, a, a sequence versus combo uh, question. But the vast majority of people actually felt that, you know, um, the company and or the trial fail to show that difference uh, for those with undetermined BRCA and or negative BRCA mutations. So this was an overwhelming result, um, which uh, recommends a, a label confined to those patients whose cancer have a BRCA DNA alteration. What implications would this have had had it been a broad label? And what does it mean for patients in the US now? I can maybe take this, Jorge. I mean, sure. I think the you know, and this came up during the meeting, the broad label indication was, well, what, you know, do we even need to test that, right? What's the point of testing if you have a broad label, right? You might want to know, but you definitely don't need to know. And I think I can see that argument both ways. You know, I think that the sponsors said, well, not everybody can get testing, right? Not everybody has access to testing. Not everybody has tissue, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so we don't want to tie people to testing, which is, we would all agree is imperfect, right? And not, um, not always possible in all patients, right? So you'll be denying benefit potentially to those patients who, who could benefit from the drug, but, but simply don't have access to testing for whatever reason. Um, you know, and I think that was, and I think that's fair. And I think the implications are that, and I don't think this is a bad implication. We need to do a better job of, of getting patients tested, right? I mean, at my institution, it's very standard, right? And we do it in pretty much everybody who walks through the door, but, but obviously that's, an academic institution, we have an established relationship with the vendor, et cetera, and that's not necessarily true across the country. So I think that was that that point about, well, now if you want to get the drug, you're going to have to test came out during the meeting. And I guess it's fair to say that had they given a broad label, this would have been given by, you know, a lot of the urology community, dare I say it, still giving LHRH agonists. And this is true of the oncology community as well. If you look at the data from the new US, not everyone's getting enteral abby up front or chemotherapy. You'd do that, and then you'd just give the unselected patients would just zoom on and get yep. laparib, and they could avoid yep. chemotherapy. And 
that would have been a massive a massive impact and now it's going to be much much more difficult because not everyone's testing and for those that are testing only 10 percent of patients are going to be eligible yeah and a, a question that i didn't ask during the meeting i wanted to i just didn't get to it is i mean as you just said tom the the standard practice should be to give an nht up front right so now the crpc setting most patients will have been exposed to nht and i don't think we saw the data in the meeting about what percentage had been exposed in this trial. I don't remember if we saw it. They didn't, but, but they didn't have it. No. They, yeah. So, but, so it's a different clinical setting now, which happens, right? You do a trial in the clinical landscape shifts. So, and we know that drugs and that NHTs in sequence are much less effective, you know? So it's almost the, the question at hand about using this doublet in a first line CRPC setting is almost a little antiquated, right? Cause many patients will have gotten Abby up front or Enza, et cetera. And I think the company kept coming back to this idea of synergy. You know, there's preclinical data and there could be synergy and it's not just a PARP inhibition in BRCA mutated patients. And I, I, I think I believe it. I just don't think this set of clinical data showed it. But that, that was, I think, that's an area for prostate cancer that needs to be sorted, right? Is there, is there true synergies to these mechanisms independent of BRCA mutation or not? But, but, but Brian, to that point, that's why the FDA... Uh, stated during the meeting that they saw this trial as an additive because if you look at, you know, most in theory, less than half of patients in America are getting treatment intensification, which is quite disappointing. You know, I think it's suboptimal. It's just, I don't know what people do that. But for those who are getting uh, a standard ADT plus one of the ARIs or novel hormonal agents, right, there was a, you have you could not have ABI on trial, right? A prior ABI, and if you have an or NHA in this case, probably it would have been probably apalutamide or enzalutamide just by virtue of how the label of those agents got. You know, you have to have progress and be off therapy for at least twelve months or at least greater than twelve months. So it opens up your question, which is, you know, we know the sequence from an oral therapy to an oral therapy does not work, right? Uh, we know that. And I think my question uh, is always, you know, when you look at the horizon as to what treatments do I have as a choice when I get treatment intensification at front and I progress, oftentimes it's not oral therapy. What we go to is chemotherapy. So putting someone on an oral agent and a PARP inhibitor, right, may actually, you know, delay the treatment that may work for those patients, which in this case may very well be chemotherapy or another type of therapy, right? So that, that is a concern to me. Yeah, you can delay PFS, but at the expense of what, right? Uh, 24 months, 25 months of side effect profile. And I think that to me also was something that I pay attention to when I was actually making my decisions. Yeah. My last question, and we should wrap this up. Uh, in your practice, where would you be using this? in the knowledge that the majority of patients are going to get upfront combination therapy. And the second point is that profound, the previous trial, single agent Alaparib already has a label in the US in the same population. Is that actually in the end going to be the more used agent or the more used PARP inhibitor in view of this decision by the FDA? Because in the end, most patients are going to get run out of treatment options they'll have testing towards the end and when that testing comes up or if it's part if it's a if it's a bracket mutation they'll get part inhibition yeah i think that's right tom i mean i think the practical result of this is that is you know hopefully people will get combined therapy up front or maybe a triplet in a subset 
And then if you're BRCA mutant, this should be your next therapy, right? I mean, the, the, those benefits are, are, are amazing, right? But I don't, yep. and I know there's trials going on of this in the hormone sensitive space, et cetera. But, but until those come through, I think, I think exactly as, you, as you've outlined is what's going to happen. Boys, you got anything to add on top of this or could we call it a day? Um, I think we can call it a day. I mean, I think there's, you know, there's as just to maybe my final point would be, you know, there's, there's Talapro, there's other trials that have looked at this. And so I don't think this is the final, final word, right? There's other data sets that are going to come through and other BRCA subsets. I don't believe Talapro presented their BRCA subset and non-BRCA, but you know, it's, it's a, it's precedent setting by FDA to say, we're not going to just give these broad labels. We're going to look at these subsets at least for this particular but Chris Sweeney, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Chris has been on, so he's been talking about this with us for a while, and he's saying all of these subsets are showing the same sort of, now there's some differences between the PARP inhibitors, and I think we all agree on that, but there doesn't seem to be a PARP inhibitor that's working in the HRR negative population exclusively well. Some might be slightly more active than others, yeah. and I think we can all agree on that, but it's not like there is the PARP inhibitor that works across the HRR and the BRCA population. There's another one that only works in the BRCA population. Right, right. So it seems unlikely right. the, the FDA are going to look at another data set which looks similar. Now, the response rates might be slightly higher across the board, but I can't see them coming in and saying, oh, no, this is, a, this is the, the biomarker negative population. These should be getting treatment as well. I think that's right. Yep, mm-hmm. I agree. We're going to call it, boys. Thanks a lot. Awesome. Thanks. Thank Thanks, you, Brian. Tom. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it. Have a great weekend. Bye, guys.